If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 27, and we will be covering all of chapter 27 and, believe it or not, the first 14 verses of chapter 28. I kept thinking, maybe we'll do less, maybe we'll do, we'll do less, and then I kept thinking, just get Paul to Rome. Um, and so we're going to get Paul to Rome today. That's the, the goal. When we last left him, he was in Caesarea. You remember that he had had these trials and he appealed to Caesar. And while no one was able to figure out what exactly he was accused of that would require him to go to Caesar and prevent, present his case before the emperor, it was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And so that request was granted. And so now we're ready to get to Rome, which means that this week we're going to spend a good bit of time on a boat uh, with Paul and 275 other men. Um, I'm not a sailor in any way, shape, or form, but I love a good story about the sea and about sailing and ships and pirates or whatever you might think about. Uh, when our family is blessed to be able to go to the beach, I always like to try to find a good book about the ocean or about sailing. And I like to read it I don't even really like to read it down on the beach. I want to be on the porch where I can hear the waves, but I'm like really close to the coffee maker and, and the snacks. And I read about these guys out in the middle of the ocean, you know, risking their lives. And I'm just amazed by them and really thankful that I'm not there uh, and I don't have to be there. <laughs> um, and this account of Paul's trip to Rome is a wonderful story about the sea and about uh, a travel on a ship. But it's, it's, it's a reminder of how difficult the journeying that Paul did was, how dangerous it was as he was going from place to place. Um, on the surface, we, we can, we'll read this and we'll be struck by all the details that, that Luke, who wrote this account and was there, gives us. He, we, we learn a lot about sailing. We learn a lot about the weather and the geography of the Mediterranean Sea in particular. And we even get to interact with the natives of the island of Malta. Um, and so Luke, again, makes it possible for us to really trace Paul's journey with accuracy and, and feel exactly what he felt and what was going on as he was traveling. But I think, we, of course, this is in the Bible. And so these verses don't just provide us with a good sailing story uh, to read on the ocean. The details of this journey are the most accessible part of the narrative, but they serve to communicate deeper truths. Uh, one of those would be to highlight the, the parallels between Jesus and Paul. And we've mentioned this before. So let me just allow John Stott to summarize this theme for us. He writes this in his commentary. He said, um, it, would, it would capture the essential geographical outlook of Luke to entitle the Gospel of Luke. So that's his first volume, the Gospel of Luke. You could title it From Galilee to Jerusalem. And you could title the book of Acts From Jerusalem to Rome, for Jerusalem was the goal of Jesus' ministry, while Rome was the goal of Paul's. Although the journeys of Jesus and Paul differed from one another in their ultimate direction and destination, they also resembled one another in their pattern. For both include a resolute determination, an arrest, a series of trials in Jewish and Roman courts, and even death and resurrection. For Paul's descent into the darkness and danger of the storm was a kind of grave, while his rescue, a kind of, while, while his uh, 
sorry, I lost my place, while his rescue from shipwreck and later springtime voyage to Rome were a kind of resurrection. Luke's highest apology for Paul was to portray him as so conformed to the life of the Lord that even his sufferings and deliverance are parallel. And so as we've said before, as we follow Jesus, the closer we walk with him, the more our own stories start to look like Jesus's story. And if that's the case, um, then our stories are going to include difficulty and they're going to include pain and even death in its various forms. But they will also include resurrection. And they will also include the sustaining grace and the steadfast love of Christ that both Jesus and the steadfast love of God that both Jesus and Paul felt and knew. And it's that, that deeper truth, the, the truth of God's providence and the peace that he gives Paul in the midst of the storm that sort of towers above all the wind and the, and the waves that we read about. We've watched Paul stand firm before persecutions and false trials, and now we're going to see the sustaining and strength, God sustaining and strengthening him in the midst of all this uncertainty and, and peril. So the journey from Caesarea to Rome reminds us of this, that God's goodness and steadfast love pursue his children. God's goodness and steadfast love pursue his children and often overflow to those around us. God's goodness and steadfast love pursue his children, drawing that from Psalm 23, and they often overflow to those around us. Life is a, is a journey, isn't it? And it's, it's not an easy one. Uh, sometimes in our journey, we feel a little bit lost at sea. Uh, sometimes we're driven by storms and we can't seem to get to any safe harbor. We can't get to the place that we're trying to get to. Um, there's unexpected winds in life. We can, and when that happens, we start to um, look like the people around Paul. We, we, we fall into hysteria or panic or just despair. We lose hope sometimes in life because it's hard. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we decide just to look out for ourselves and, and not love others. Sometimes we just flat out panic in the midst of life and the difficulty that comes. But, but what if instead a trust in the providence and the love of God could fill us? Instead of panic or anger or hope, or hopelessness or failing to love others, what, what if instead we were filled with this deep trust in God's providence and his love for us? What if no matter how dangerous or depressing or deadly our journey becomes, we're able to trust that God's goodness and his steadfast love are pursuing us as his children and that they might even overflow to all the people around us if we can trust that. Paul doesn't give us uh, five tips to build that kind of trust here, but he does model for us what children of King Jesus look like in the midst of difficulty. He models what it looks like to trust God's providence, his, his goodness, his steadfast love. And as we, we grow to trust him, other people end up being caught in the, the wake of God's goodness towards us because God's goodness and steadfast love pursue his children and often 
overflow to those around us. The journey Paul sets out on in verse 1 eventually ends in Rome, but it's going to take us a while to get there, okay? Um, and so we're going to tackle a lot of verses, and I, and I want to consider it in four different parts. So we're going to read each section and then discuss it a little bit before reading the next one. And as I read, I'm also going to try to fill in um, some details and clarifications. So I'm not just going to read straight through. I'll probably read and add some little things so we understand what's going on since we're tackling so much. Also, here is a, a map. Um, this includes Paul's third missionary journey where he's going up there to Macedonia and then down to Corinth. But if you follow this other line that goes up over top of Cyprus and then down over here to Crete and then where we see Paul's ship is lost in a storm all the way up to Rome in the upper left-hand corner, that's what we're going to, that's the trip we're going to take from uh, Caesarea all the way to Rome and that's how he gets there. Um, so for each section, I just want to zoom in a little bit so you can see a little bit more clearly. We're starting in Caesarea, and I want to read to the part in the text where we get to Fair Havens there on the bottom of Crete. So that's going to be um, Acts 27, verses 1 through 8. Acts 27, let me begin reading in verse 1. And when it was decided that we, so now we see Luke is back in, uh, he's with Paul, that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. These other prisoners are thought maybe to be guys who were going to Rome to be in the games. Um, uh, they had been given a death sentence and they would be put to death in that way. Verse 2, and embarking in a, in a ship of Andromitum, Andromitium, I think is how you should say it, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. So on the map, you can see that under the lee doesn't mean that they sailed underneath Cyprus. Rather, it means that they sailed close to the shore of Cyprus, and that would allow the, the island to block strong winds that were coming out of the west and would make their trip easier. So Cyprus is blocking those strong winds. Verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Just pause here for a minute. You can see that on the map, Cilicia, Lycia, and they land in, in Myra. Um, and you remember, this is the area that Paul and Barnabas first went to on their first missionary journey. They had ministered in Cyprus, Barnabas' home island, and then they, they went north. And I just have to pause and think how, how long ago that must have felt in Paul's mind. Uh, that first missionary journey and all the things that he experienced and, and what a different trip he is on now. And the other thing that came to my mind is, is look how close he is to Tarsus, uh, where he was born. Uh, probably the last time that he would be that close to, to Tarsus. Close to home, but, but not able to go. Just had to sail past it. it. Reminded me of a story my grandfather recently revealed. He's slowly telling more stories uh, now that he's getting older. And he told us this story that after his basic training, and he had spent some time in Louisville when he was preparing to go to World War uh, he, he was in North Africa uh, during World War II. 
And they took a train and they went through, they were heading out to the coast to, uh, to sail to North Africa. And the train stopped in his hometown in Canton, Ohio for water, but they wouldn't let him off because they thought he would go AWOL, of course. And so there he sat and he, you know, he's close, he's closer than Paul was to Tarsus. And he, he wasn't allowed off. And so he wouldn't be there for another three, four years, imagine that. And so I just think about Paul in a similar situation. So, sorry, a little aside there in the midst of the text. But, so Luke then writes in verse 6 that in Myra, uh, verse 6, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. So they changed ships in Lysias. This first one was not going to go all the way to Rome, but rather probably just to its home port. And so after some difficult sailing on this new boat, they find that the winds are not going to allow them to go across as they had originally planned, but rather they had to go south and they go underneath Crete and along its, its coast. And then verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So they stop on the southern side of the island of Crete. You see that in a town called Fair Havens. Um, this is Fair Havens. This is a picture that Paul took when he was there. Uh, kind of feels like it almost, right? Um, so there's probably no town in Fair Havens. It was just this, this area. That's why uh, Luke says it was near uh, Lycia because there was nothing else there. So beyond sort of the details of this journey, what stands out to me and hopefully to you in these verses is that Paul had friends everywhere. Uh, everywhere Paul went, he knew someone. Uh, most notably, though, we find that Luke and Aristarchus volunteer to travel with Paul, probably as his servants, uh, to minister to him. And I just thought, what truer friends could you ever find than people who will volunteer to take a perilous sea voyage with you to go to a trial where you might be sentenced to death. These guys loved Paul, and they were willing to serve him in this way. Along the way, we also find that Paul had friends in Sidon. So brothers and, and sisters who encouraged him and were surely encouraged by him. Uh, and it just reminds us again of the testimony of the family of God, that whether we know each other or not, our faith in Christ it means that God is our Father and Jesus is our elder brother and the Spirit is within us. And so everywhere we go, we find family. Uh, Paul's example, I think, encourages us to, to embrace that beauty. Um, embrace the beauty of the, of the family of God. Don't, don't hold fellow believers at an arm's length. Whether it's across town or across the world, we, have, we are surrounded by fellow followers of Jesus and we should consider them friends that we just haven't met yet. Uh, brothers and sisters that we didn't really know we were related to. Embrace the beauty of the family of God. So these are friends we would expect Paul to make, but Paul also makes some unlikely friends, doesn't he? Uh, this happens on Malta, interestingly. But here he, he makes a friend with the man who's in charge of getting him to Rome, this Roman co cohort named Julius. And God uses that relationship to give Paul some freedom on the journey. He'll, he'll later use it to save Paul's life, literally. Uh, another good encouragement to, to love those that, that may even in our lives be playing the part of an enemy at the time. To love our enemies. Um, because they could end up 
later being unlikely friends. Um, Jesus calls us to, to love our enemies. And coming back to this big idea then, that I think we see a major source of God's loving kindness and goodness pursuing us in our lives. It's found in the fellow travelers that we meet along the journey of life. Sometimes we're looking for God's loving kindness in material things or other kinds of blessings, but often it's, it's in people. It's in people like Aristarchus and Luke and Julius and the folks at Sidon and elsewhere. And so all of this just again, and we've seen this throughout Luke, but it's just an encouragement to us all to invest in friendships, that friendships are worth your time. Uh, they're a wonderful means of God's grace in our lives. And as they minister to us, God's grace also overflows out of us to our friends. So Paul has friends everywhere. We see that here um, and we see this journey. But let's, let's read the rest of, of the journey and, and we'll read the rest of chapter 27. And again, I'll interject here and there. Uh, that's not gonna get us to Rome though. It's gonna get us to an unplanned three-month stay on the island of Malta. Uh, as you look at the, the map here, we see where Paul went, but really God, God literally only knows where Paul's boat went. It was tossed to and fro throughout the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and as we read this, we'll, we'll trace the journey, but also look for four times that Paul tries to intervene, four, four interventions that Paul makes during this trip. So we're going from Fair Havens to Malta in Acts 27, verses 9 through 44. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, which would have been the Day of Atonement, about October, uh, sailing season closed in November, and so it was not a good time to be on the water. So because of that, Paul advises them, verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of, of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Just pause for a minute. We might think that Julius was smart to listen to people other than Paul um, as far as sailing goes, but we should also remember how many hours Paul logged traveling and how well he probably knew the Mediterranean. Not to mention Paul's closeness to the Lord, which is always a good reason to listen to someone uh, as they're walking with the Lord. But uh, his opinion was valid, but it was not listened to. So they head to Phoenix, not Nevada, but Phoenix, Crete. Uh, it's there. You can see it in the middle of the, of the island of Crete. That's where they were trying to get to, but they don't, as we'll see. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. So if you can imagine, it's coming from the north-south, blowing them off of Crete, pushing them away from Crete. Verse 15, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to, to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus 
they were driven along. So the lifeboat was being pulled behind them. It's getting beaten up by the waves. So they decide we need to pull this thing up on board. So they do that. Imagine how difficult that would be. Sounds like Paul, like Luke remembers it because he was there and did it. And then they wrap the hull of the boat with ropes to try to hold it together. So they go underneath the bottom of the boat and they're trying to hold this ship together. And then they try to slow it down because there's these sandbars here in Northern Africa and they, they don't know how far south they're going to get pushed and they're scared they're going to hit that. So they're just trying to put on the brakes, as it were. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Do you feel the despair of this group? They are storm-tossed. There's no sunlight. There's no hope. No one has hope except for Paul. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Possibly they could hear waves crashing on a shore. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, 120 feet. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense, they're lying, of, of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea." Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. So they've lightened it. You can see the boat just sort of rise out of the water. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The, the bow, the front, stuck and remained immovable and the stern the back was being beat, being broken up by the surf the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape 
But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. All of them. Every single man survived. Can you imagine these 276 guys washed ashore, standing or maybe lying on uh, dry ground for the first time in over two weeks? And in many ways, they had Paul to thank for the fact that they were still alive. Of course, it was ultimately God that they had to thank, but it would seem in many ways that it was actually God's goodness and loving kindness centered on Paul that overflowed in blessing to them all. Paul's rationality and his wisdom, as well as God's supernatural sovereignty and and Paul's trust in that are are seen on display in these four interventions. Maybe you notice them. Uh, They show Paul to be a man of deep faith and of practical action, um, which reminds us that those two things are not mutually exclusive. Having deep faith and being practical are not uh, opposites. Um, Oswald Chambers has said, trust God and do the next thing. That's a good principle for life. Trust God, have faith, and then do what's next. And that's what Paul does. So the first intervention in verses 9 through 11 is to the centurion, He says, we shouldn't go. First intervention to the centurion, we shouldn't go. We should not leave Crete. As we noted, Paul was not a sailor, but he had probably traveled roughly 3,500 miles on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, And yet his wisdom and his experience are not heeded, which leads to the second intervention. So the first one is to the centurion. Paul says, we shouldn't go. And the second one is what I think is the most beautiful one in verses 21 to 26, and that's to everyone. And he says, you should have listened to me, but still, you shouldn't be afraid. First one, we shouldn't go. Second, you should have listened to me, but still, you shouldn't be afraid. Uh, This one comes in verse 21. It comes right after we're told that everyone on board had lost hope, that they didn't think they were going to be saved. And in the midst of that, Paul stands up and he says, you guys should have listened to me. (laughs) Now, I don't think this is like a snide, I told you so. But I think Paul is saying, uh, he's trying to reveal that he's he's a good source of information. You know, he's saying, I was right about fair havens, so maybe you guys should listen to me about some other things, okay? And and what he, he says is that there's no need to fear or be afraid because no one is going to die. Just the ship is going to be destroyed. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? How, how does he know that? Can, can he back that up? He knows it because for the third time that's recorded here in Acts, the Lord has communicated to and encouraged Paul directly. The Lord, Paul says, to whom he belongs and who he worships, spoke to him through an angel. I love how he describes the Lord. It's the one to whom I belong and who I worship. Our God is worthy of all praise because he exalted above all other gods. He's the one that made the sea that they were traveling on. But he is also a God who is personally involved in our lives. He is the God to whom we belong. You ever define God like that? Who do you worship? I worship the God 
to whom I belong. I belong to him. On Father's Day, of course, we think about the love of a father. And there's a deep desire for fathers to protect the children who belong to them. And we who are children of God through faith in Jesus, we have a father to whom we belong. A father who loves us and, and watches over us and protects us. And his love is so great, the love of the Father is so great that it overflows to the people around him. Those who are near to God's children end up being caught up in the blessings that come from the Father to his children. I remember as a senior in high school, I was visiting Moody Bible Institute where I would eventually go to college, and my dad came out with me. We went to Chicago, and I had some friends that lived on a certain floor, and so we stayed with these guys, and then we all went out to dinner. And my dad came along, and I still remember being, we went to Giordano's, which was a mistake. We should have gone to lose, but I didn't know we went. It was good. It was decent. So we went to this pizza place, and I remember that there's all these college guys, and you're, you're broke and hungry in college, right? And my dad paid for everyone. And I still remember how cool that was. I think I, it meant more to me later on when I realized what it's like to be a college kid. And these guys were, you're kidding. You're going to buy all the pizza? And I remember, and and as I think about that, it's because my dad loved me that he was going to pay for the pizza. And then his love for me just sort of overflowed to bless all these other poor, hungry, broke uh, college kids. And and that's how the Lord works. So the Lord says, I'm going to protect you, Paul. You have to get to Caesar. That's that's what has to happen. And you know what? I'm going to give you all the guys on the ship too. I, that's how it's, it's stated there. Do you see that? It says, um, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I think we can infer from that that Paul is not just praying for his own preservation and protection. He's praying for all these guys with him. And so God looks on Paul and in, in kindness, he, Paul knows that he's going to get to Rome. He's got the promise, right? 2311. Paul, you will testify me before me in Rome. In some ways, Paul doesn't even need to pray for his own protection because he knows that God has promised he will get him to Rome. But he prays that God would protect all the people with him. And God answers that request. Consider the goodness and loving kindness of our God. God's loving kindness and goodness is far greater than we could ever imagine. And it overflows from us into the lives of those that we love. Think about that on a Father's Day. That God's love for you as a father is going to overflow into your family. That that's how God loves us. Think about that just as a child of King Jesus. As a child of the Father. That he loves you. And his love is so great that it overflows to the people in your workplace. To the people in your neighborhood. To the people in your family to the people you rub shoulders with. So Paul, this deep encouragement, and then just a statement of faith, um, verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Oh, that God would give us that kind of faith, that we would just, we would believe the promises that he says, that when he says it, we would say, have faith, Because I believe, I believe it's going to be exactly the way he said it's going to be. So um, that's the second intervention. The second, the first one is uh, we shouldn't leave. The second one is uh, you should have listened to me, but still you shouldn't be worried. And then the third one is to the centurion again. And he says, you shouldn't let these guys go. 
Um, speaking of the sailors, you shouldn't let these guys go. V- very simply, Paul watched, Paul somehow, I think maybe supernaturally, knew what these sailors were going to do. And he knew that if all the experienced sailors on board jump ship, then uh, they're not going to survive. They're not going to, but, but wait a minute, God said they were going to survive, right? So here again is this practicality that, that Paul knows they will be saved, but he also says, but we can't let all the, these guys go. And even at the end there of, of that second intervention, I should have pointed out that he says, we're going to be saved, but we got to run aground on some island. So there's this, this faith, trust, but also this practicality. Trust God, do the next thing. And so anyways, this insight comes and, and practical action happens. He talks to Julius. Julius listens to Paul this time, doesn't he? Uh, and the lifeboat's cut loose from the ship and everyone's got to stay on board. And then the final intervention is in verses 33 to 38, where he says to everyone, you should eat something. You should eat something. Um, sounds like a, a mom or a grandma, right? Are you hungry? You, need to, you guys need to eat something. Come on. Um, you know, despair makes us lose our appetite. We've all been there, right? When you're overwhelmed, you don't want to eat. And these guys are so overwhelmed that they've just completely lost their appetite. They have no hope. And so they think they're all going to die. What's the point in eating? But Paul, Paul knew that they had better eat, especially if they're going to survive a shipwreck. If they're going to survive a swim to shore, they're going to need some kind of energy. And he sees that coming soon. And so he takes bread. Do you notice the way that's written? He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and passes it around. Uh, it sounds like the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's supposed to make us think of the Lord's Supper. This isn't Paul passing out the Lord's Supper to people that were not followers of Jesus. That's not what's going on here. I think actually it's the picture of the feeding of the 5,000. I think it's more a picture of blessing that flows from Paul again. And so Paul, like Jesus, blesses these hungry, fearful people with food. He acts like Jesus and he blesses people in the name of Jesus. It was at the feeding of the 5,000 that in many ways we see the precedent for praying before our meals. And so Paul follows in Jesus' footstep and he prays, acknowledging that every good gift that we have is, is from God. That's really practical. Um, that's practical for fathers. That's practical for all of us. Don't take lightly the opportunity to pray before a meal, to pray before unbelievers. The practice of praying before meals is a wonderful one, and it's one we should just always do. It always gives opportunity to testify to God's goodness, um, no matter who we're with, because we're going to pause and we're going to acknowledge who God is and pray in the name of Jesus. That's not something that we should just, we should do it out of habit. It's good to do it out of habit, but also recognize there's something deep involved with that. And so everyone eats, they throw all the leftover food overboard, they throw all the the grain overboard, probably to, this is what they were supposed to be taking um, to Rome, Um, but then when when daylight comes, they make it to shore as the text uh, describes sort of um, on their rafts, uh, riding the waves in. Um, this uh, This is where they supposedly landed. Uh, this is called St. Paul's Island. Uh, this is traditionally where they were expected to land. You may even be able to see there's like a, a monument there that's a statue of Paul. But this is, uh, this is Malta, and this is, this is where they, they landed. It's an island. It's only about 122 square miles in size. It's not big. 
Um, but this is, uh, this is where they go. But this is not their goal, right? They weren't trying to get to Malta. They're trying to get to Rome. And they land on this island, and who knows what's on this island? They don't know if it's safe. Um, and so that's what we're going we're gonna, to uh, see in a second here. What's going on on, on Malta? Um, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, which is referring to a god, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him, visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. I love when they land there that Paul is not above gathering wood to put on the fire, is he? Again, he's a practical man. Um, but when he gathered it, he missed the, the snake that was in there. Uh, and, and that snake latches onto his hand. And to me, whenever I read this, it's that moment. It's, it's when I see that snake hanging on Paul's hand and he shakes it off. How much the Lord protected him from. You can go back and we can say, you know, he's placed in the care of Julius who shows him kindness and not cruelty. The ship is spared from who knows how many dangers as it's driven by the wind and by the storm. The, the sailors are kept from escaping in the lifeboat and causing everyone to, to drown. The soldiers who want to kill all the prisoners are not allowed to because Julius stops them. Everyone jumps off the ship and makes it to shore. That's amazing. The people of Malta don't kill them all when they come to shore. Instead, they treat them with kindness. That's God's goodness to them. And the viper doesn't kill Paul. It's because nothing can thwart God's good plans for us, right? God's goodness and steadfast love pursue his children and it overflows into blessing around those, of those around us. I don't want to make too much of the snake, but it is a reminder to us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, against the old snake, as scripture calls him, Satan, and the forces of evil. But through Christ, we can just shake them off. Um, and Paul says in, in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And Satan is ultimately going to be thrown into an everlasting fire. All of the victory that we have in this life as we walk through it, it flows from the triumph of Christ through his death and resurrection. The sting of death has been removed because Jesus has died 
on our behalf. He has taken sin, our sin upon himself, and he's risen to give us new life. And just as the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the bruising of Jesus' heel, as Genesis 3.15 calls it, results in the crushing of Satan's head for the glory of God, so too the, the serpent is used in this circumstance to glorify God. The islanders see the snake, and they think that justice has finally gotten Paul, the God justice, which is ironic, thinking about how all the injustice that Paul had faced. Um, but then when nothing happens to him, they quickly change, and they, they want to glorify Paul, and finally they glorify God. And everything that happens on Malta is just astounding. Here's a prisoner heading for Rome who heals the leading man, the, the leading man of that island, heals his father, and then everyone on the island starts coming to Paul, and Paul starts laying his hand on them and, and healing them. You think about the goodness and the loving kindness of, of, of God that is pursuing Paul everywhere he goes, and then that goodness and loving kindness just overflows to the men and women of Malta. And surely there's, there's men and women on Malta, and there's men from the shipwreck who believe the gospel because of what happened, because they see what happens here. How could you not? This was a place that Paul never had on his list of areas to go. He wanted to go to Rome, you remember? He, Paul was going to get to Rome no matter what. You know where he probably never would have gone? Malta. <laughs> he never would have gone to Malta to share the gospel there. So God took him to Malta. And so God gets, God gets Paul to Malta um, to share the gospel because God had people in Malta that needed to hear the good news. So Paul was going to get to the bright lights of Rome, but he was going to get there by way of Malta because that was God's plan. And so Paul and his shipmates were there on Malta. They were there for three months. And then very quickly, this is our final map. Most important place on this map is Rome. Um, and the arrow actually gets there, doesn't it? So we read verse 11 of chapter 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship, remember, that's filled now with all the things that the people of Malta had blessed them with. Uh, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. This would be Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus. They were the gods of navigation and the patrons of seafarers. Um, interesting detail. Verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Rechium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, they, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. They made it. They got to Rome. It reminds me of, uh, you know, that feeling of pulling into your driveway after a long trip, I don't know, sometimes I pull into the driveway and I just lean back and close my eyes like, finally home, we made it. You know? And it feels like, like that. They, they made it after Paul, all that Paul had been through, the Lord got him to Rome. This is the fulfillment of all those promises. Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. I'm going to do it. And, and it happened. It, this is not the way God, that, that Paul had planned. This was not the way he wanted to get to Rome. But the Lord got him there, and all along the way, God's goodness and steadfast love pursued him, and all along the way, God's goodness and steadfast love was overflowing uh, to others around him. 
If we are God's children, that's how he acts towards each of us in ways that we know and ways that we will only know after we die. If we are worshipers of God through Jesus, then we belong to him. We belong to him. And, and whatever difficulty or pain or trial or storm or enemy would assault us, God gets us where we need to be. God accomplishes his purposes in our lives. Ultimately, the place he wants to get us is to the kingdom. And we're going to get there safely. We will make it to God's kingdom. Nothing can stop that because of what Christ has done. You know, Paul was used greatly by the Lord, and, and Paul was, was a unique man in church history, right? Our, our story is not going to necessarily look like Paul's. He was, he was unique, but your soul and my soul are no less valuable to the Father than Paul's soul. The, the Father doesn't play favorites. Uh, he loves us all. Paul isn't, isn't God's favorite son. We, we are all equally loved by the Father, and he has promised to walk with us. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And we can trust this. We can trust that God's goodness and his steadfast love will, will pursue us as his children. And we can even look for ways that it's going to overflow to others. I don't know, maybe this is just, as I was trying to think about real specific application, I, I don't have any. Uh, real specific, but I just think that sometimes it's just good to hear that God is for you, that, that God is, is working in ways to, to bless you, that he pursues you with goodness, that he pursues you with steadfast love, that there's trials and difficulty all around us, and sometimes it, we can fall into despair and to heartbreak, and we just we just want to give up and lose all hope. It feels like the sun is not shining. It feels like we're lost at sea. And, and know, even in that circumstance, that we can rise up and we can say, the Lord through his word has promised that he is with me, that he will pursue me with his goodness and his loving kindness all the way until his eternal kingdom. So there's lots of different ways to see that in this passage, but I hope you, I hope you hear it. I hope you hear that, that through Christ, God is for you and he is pursuing you. And if you are not his child through faith, um, he is a God who is pursuing you even now. And he wants, to, um, he wants to, to shed his goodness and his loving kindness over you. He wants to adopt you as his child and walk with you into his heavenly kingdom.